Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel's going to lead us off with a scripture reading and a prayer. Now, on today's program, uh, we're recording this on Friday, which is the Feast of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And it's uh, he, it is he who is going to be the sort of the theme or the basis for our program today. So that's my, there's my lead in for uh-huh. you, Father. And one of his famous sets of sermons was on the Song of Songs. So I'd like to start with a scripture quote from chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. More delightful is your love than wine. Your name spoken is a spreading perfume. That is why the maidens love you. Draw me, we will follow you eagerly. Bring me, O king, to your chambers. Good and gracious God, we do ask that you lead us on to union with you. We ask you to let our lives unfold as you desire, that we might become the people that you created us and saints that you created us to be. And so bless us in this next hour that we might, again, draw close in some small way and we might take some grace, some blessing from it and that will lead us on to you. And we ask these things through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. You know, the, um, the Song of Songs, you know, it's one of those books of the scriptures that uh, it, it, it can, I would say, often just sort of be left behind uh, when people think of doing scripture studies and... Right. You know, it's easy to, to like stay focused on the Gospels or the Pauline letters or, or New Testament books. Right. And then in the Old Testament, you cover lots of different, like lots of opportunities, right? Whether they're historical books or prophetic books. But I don't know, have you ever led a Bible study on the Song of Songs? I have not, actually. Um, but but again, Bernard Clairvaux, he did a, seri- a preaching series, his sermons on the Song of Songs. That's like 80 of them or something, I think. And there's probably one of his most famous works, actually. And he did see that as the, it was a, an analogy for the, you know, again, it was a romance uh, poem, and yet it was the, the romance of God with the human soul. And so uh, he was all, that was what he was all about. And so, again, it would be interesting if somebody to do it, but I've not. So, you know, it's, uh, so today we're, we're going to be reflecting on St. Bernard of Clairvaux, talking about themes in his teaching a bit about his life, and um, and then we have a number of quotes here to cover. Um, I, you know, uh, Father, you're as a historian. Uh, I think you had a, a you have a particular like a devotion or uh, an appreciation for the gift of Saint Bernard and and his family. A little bit about his history. Uh, do you mind sharing that with our, our audience, just to kind of kind of get us level set? Well, I, I think probably some years ago we were talking about this, and I. One of the things that that uh, spurred my interest and devotion to St. Bernard was was this book, uh, The Family That Overtook Christ by M. Raymond. Uh, he was a, a Cistercian, he was a Trappist monk at Gethsemane Abbey. At the same time, really, a little bit before, at the same time, it overlapped with uh, Thomas Merton. And in fact, he was the Trappist writer until Merton came along. Uh, Merton kind of, you know, knocked him out of the... Uh, spotlight a little bit, actually. Um, but in the 30s and 40s, the most famous Trappist in America was probably Father Mary Raymond. And so it's a, it's a book that he, it's sort of a historical fiction, but it's based certainly upon the facts of Bernard's life of bringing his family to uh, God and via the monastic life. And, you know, it's incredible. He brought like 30 members of his family um, with him to the abbey uh, or to similar abbeys. And it's, you know, we, sometimes we, for those of us who are trying to get our families to heaven, I mean, this is, we think of St. Monica sometimes, but if you're talking about just sanctifying this, the family and not just your children, but your family, Bernard would be a great patron. And, and so he, uh, he was drawn into like the Benedictine order. Right. And also had an, uh, a, a founding impact on the Cistercians. So he, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Please, go ahead, Father. So he, sometimes people think of him as like this founding father of the Cistercian um, order. And the Trappists today are sort of the, the descendants, spiritual descendants of the, the Cistercians from the 12th century, especially in, they began in France, what we would call France, and spread outward. But this was one of those movements that just took off. And it was Bernard that started the takeoff, so to speak. But he wasn't the originator of it. There was a, um, the, there was an abbey, um, that that was founded by, again, a handful of monks that wanted to 
a more simple, more austere Benedictine life than was lived in France during that time. And they went off into the kind of the swamps of a valley and they, they started this very austere abbey. And it was kind of just sitting there and not really taken off until Bernard showed up with all of his brothers and his cousins. And after that, it, it exploded. And so he's not the founder of the Cistercian movement within Benedictine monasticism, but he is, you know, again, he's the catalyst for the, the huge event that Cistercian life in 12th century Europe uh, became. And wasn't the, um, the, the monastery that he lived in when they built it, wasn't it the, even larger than St. Peter's? It was not, not in terms, certainly not the chapel or anything, in terms of St. Peter's Church. In fact, their, their chapels are historically simple. And, um, but it, so the, it, it wasn't that huge of a church uh, in terms of the building itself. Um, but it, the, the number of people that would come in were like hundreds. Um, so again, they, and it was really the first religious order. Um, I think that sometimes, we, well, the Benedictines are first, right? Yes, but the Benedictines were autonomous. Each abbey was autonomous. And even the Cluny uh, family, um, the, 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 the Abbey of Cluny uh, in the 10th century, I believe, and it, it, it had daughter houses that it would run but the Cistercians were the first order that really had like general chapters and that there was a hierarchy within the order. And there was this order, European-wide organization and communication. Um, you didn't, this was before anything like the Franciscans or the, or the Dominicans or any of the other orders. This was the first, what we would think of as a religious order with all the organization that went with it. And, well, and, and you know, you, um, you, you said it. It was in, in Cluny. That's where... Yeah. The very large. Um, yeah, that was that was the that, that had a huge that was a huge church. Yes. Yeah, uh, and so I I can remember going there and just seeing that you know the the, the only part that right. remained was one of the like bell towers. Right, and it was, right. It's probably huge. It probably yeah. huge. I've never <laughs> been there, but I do know the Cistercians were reacting against that movement because the Cluniac movement was all about a beautiful liturgy that would never end. Um, it was, so again, the churches were huge, the music was beautiful, and it went on all the time. It was 24-7. There were shifts, you know, of monks and, and the chanting and things. And the Cistercians wanted to get back to labor and simple liturgy and, and poverty. And so the, uh, that Cluniac movement was very important in early monastic history because it was a reform in terms of liturgy and seriousness of life. But the Cistercians took the reform in a different way in terms of the monastic element of poverty and simplicity. And so, again, they, they're not enemies, but they, they certainly had different takes on things. And, and Father, it's really interesting here you, to share all these different details. And th- there's also a personal connection to you for this in your own, um, your own discernment. Well, the Cistercians, I... I my main, my main, the religious order I was mostly interested in was the Carthusians. But, so they are, they, they are another offtake. They, 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 theirs was not so much poverty and simplicity as solitude. So the, the uh, Carthusians are hermits. But I did, I did check out uh, Trappist monasteries, and I went and visited Trappist monasteries in my discernment as well. I went to New Mallory in Iowa, and Trinity uh, uh, Abbey in Utah, both Trappist uh, monasteries that were founded uh, after World War II in sort of the, the Merton boom, so to speak. And, and I did check it out, but I, I, I just didn't feel the calls to that, um, that, that form of life. So, so just to, I'm kind of interested in this. Like, uh, what was it that, like, inside of you that made you say, I'm drawn to this and I need to discern it? And then what was it inside of you that said, you know what, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I need to step away from this. Well, I think when I came back to the church, so, you know, again, it's a, probably a longer story than maybe you want to get into, but I I came back to the church in my 20s during graduate school. I was going to be a historian. I wanted, I was training and I was studying to be a history professor, a writer of history, historian. And during that time is when I actually re- reverted to the church and um, started to take an active role in the faith. 
and the, my original discernment was monastic. I think, I, and I think that I was thinking of like the Benedictine ideal of sort of the scholar monk. You know, I was thinking, well, I'm a scholar, so maybe this is I like to do that, and maybe even teaching. And um, and so I was thinking in, in terms of the monastic life, and there's still something attractive to that. Um, and and so, and but yet I, I think, and I and I have uh, I've kind of this is a sort of a looking back after decades on my experience and trying to analyze it, I think what I was really attracted to was kind of the all-in nature of monasticism. The, the idea that if you're going to live for Christ, live all, all out for him. And that was probably the attraction for the Carthusians. They have, the, they have this reputation in the Catholic Church of being the most austere order. Um, and they are. They're, 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 they take things very seriously, you know. And they don't... What the One of the quotes about Carthusians is they were never reformed because they're never deformed. Um, they, they, they haven't fallen into decay because they've just been very, they've been quiet, you know, off, off by themselves, doing their thing and um, being faithful to it. And so it wasn't, I wasn't a solitary. So I, I went off to the Carthusians and I, I was just not a hermit. Um, and you can't be a Carthusian unless you're a hermit because that's the charism. And so I could do it. I think some people would go crazy if they if you if you live by yourself for a month or two um, and never talk to anybody except for a, on a walk during Monday afternoons. Um, I think there would be some people who go crazy. I didn't go crazy, but I also think you know I said, nah, this this isn't what God's calling me to. And when I went to the Trappist, so this was after the Carthusians. The Carthusians, I said, well, that's not me. So I said, well, I'm not a I'm not a solitary, but maybe I'm still a monk. It's just that I'm going to be in a in a, you know, an order where you interact more with people. But again, it, it's hard to say why, but I, I actually did that once I became a priest. I, was, I actually continued to discern monastic life after I was ordained. Um, I never had any doubt about the priestly vocation, but I had questions about religious versus diocesan. But really what it came down to was that I, I liked, you know, I'm on a radio show. Um, and this is just one small example of, I kind of discerned that I'd like to interact with the world and the ideas of the world and the signs of the times um, and, and to preach about that and to, to teach about that. And so I thought, you know, ultimately I think I'm more of a diocesan priesthood out in the world, mixing it up um, with, the, with the people and the things that are in the world. So, and I think that's true. At this point in my life, I'm, I am who I am. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm not going off after monasteries anymore. I am who I am, so... You know, Father, I, as you're talking about it, one of the, like, sort of the principles of discernment was you didn't just, like, go into a chapel and take out a notebook and say, all right, Lord, you know, like, tell me where to go and write it down. <laughs> but there was, a like, discernment through action. Like, right. you, you actually had to step out and even, like, put some serious, like, commitment. Like, you had to take time. You had to travel. You had to make space in your schedule. You had to be willing to enter into something, you know, sort of the, the whole idea of test and reflect. Right. Um, so how important was that? And, and I'm thinking about this now for like our listeners, because a lot of folks, they face a lot of important decisions in their life. Like I, I think of, um, uh, we have a daughter who is today um, an orientation program at Franciscan University mm. and carries there with her. And it's like, okay, well, Figuring out what school to go to, right. you know, a lot of people would actually kind of they make a tour right. and they, right. you know, go visit several locations and get a feel for things, right? Um, so, how important is that for um, for the folks who are listening regarding where does the Lord speak? How does the Lord speak to get clarity around discernment about important matters? You know, it's interesting. First off, the the college tour thing is um, that is a great example today. It, it, that's a new thing within the last few decades. We never did that, you know. Back in my old days, in the dark ages when I was going to uh, college, you just you didn't do that. You just said, "Oh, well, I'm going to go to Western, or I'm going to go to UW or something," and you applied to one or two schools. And I never visited any of them. But today it is it's different, and I'm not saying it's not wise to do that. But in terms of my own discernment, there was a lot of prayer. So, I mean, I was, you know, I prayed and read a lot about monastic life, et cetera. And it wasn't just the Trappist and the, and the Carthusians. Uh, I also looked into the Benedictines as well down on Mount Angel. Now, that's why the example I want to use to answer your question, because 
you know, I took several um, retreats there uh, down to Mount Angel. And I remember this, this is an interesting discernment um, clue. As you say, you got to put yourself in the place. Uh, Archbishop Thomas Murphy um, once talked to us seminarians about that. He said, you know what? Eventually you have to go off to the seminary. Um, you know, it might be that you're clearly not called to it and you might get a clear answer, but the best way to really determine it is just go and put yourself in the spot and see what happens to you. Um, what do you feel? What do you experience when you actually take a step out and do it? Um, you're not committing yourself to life to by going off to the seminary. You are simply taking a serious step in discernment. It doesn't mean that you frivolously do it. You have to pray first, and you're going to be tested by the archdiocese. There's going to be examinations, etc. But he didn't have a lot of time for people who endlessly just thought about it and never went off to the seminary. At some point, he said, "Well, you know, either go to seminary or stop calling me, um, because we've done we've done as much as we can at this point." And I was thinking about that just in terms during my. I don't know when it was, 2003 or four or something. I was, I was, I was going down the Mount Angel thinking, you know, okay, maybe. So again, I was not the Carthusians, maybe not the Trappists, maybe the Benedictines. So I go off there, and what I noticed is kind of what I noticed is that I had a thought that I was supposed to be a Benedictine monk, and then I went down to the Abbey and spent five days there. And in the midst of that time, I came to the discernment: this was not for me. And then, this is the interesting thing, I got in my car on Friday after I was done with my retreat, and I started to drive back up north of Seattle, and on that drive back, the idea that I was supposed to be a monk started coming back into my mind. And I, well, eventually, I was, caught myself in saying, oh, wait a minute, I was just at the Abbey, and I didn't feel this. Now I'm leaving the place where I'd actually live, and suddenly, this seems like more like a temptation to me than it is a discernment. This isn't a call, this is a temptation. Because when I put myself there, I get the answer, no, it's not you. When I, when I leave, this voice says, well, maybe it is. So I think it's really hugely important that whatever the discernment is for you, and it might not be a vocational discernment or something, but you put yourself in the spot the best you can. Um, and, and Because God does really, he really talks to you in, in the location, in the spot, um, you know, in, in, in situ, so to speak. So... Um, I would back you up there, Tom, and say, yeah, you have to be active in your discernment. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, Father Kurt Nagel sharing today a bit uh, on this feast day of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. We're recording this on a Friday the 20th, and you're hearing this on uh, Monday the 23rd. We're picking to break. When we come back, we're going to pick up and uh, lean on St. Bernard of Clairvaux a bit, his theology, and we've got some wonderful quotes from him. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern with Father Kurt Nagel. Uh, Father Nagel, uh, you began with the Song of Songs, um, beginning at verse 2. And there's a phrase in there. Uh, it says, draw me, we will follow you eagerly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, that, that's one of the like, key themes in the theology of St. Bernard that I was taught way back when I was in the seminary. And we were understanding sort of medieval theology and sort of uh, at, at one end of it was St. Augustine mm. and his sort of famous phrase, credo ut intelligam, I believe so that I might understand. Unless you believe, you will not come into any true understanding of who God is or what God has revealed. But then on the other end of the, you know, in the high, high to you know, late Middle Ages, you have St. Bernard, and here's St. Bernard with, uh, a different phrase, not credo ut intelligam, but amo ut intelligam. I love mm. so that I might understand. And unless you love, you will understand nothing about the true nature of God. And that theme of love is so very prominent. You mentioned the the commentary and homilies on the Song of Songs. And this theme of draw me, we will follow you eagerly, that the experience of being loved by God is like a magnet, and we are being drawn by God's love. You you know that you are being loved by God when you are drawn towards Him. We we, we might think that we're moving towards God. No, it's it's God drawing us to Himself, and it'll show up in us as following after Him eagerly. But we're we're responding to the love that draws us. I, I can remember being taught that, and just having such a big impact on me, and and linking it to this verse of Scripture. 
And I think that Bernard of Clairvaux, he, there's so many different levels to this fellow because he was so involved in the politics of the age. He was like he was more famous than the Pope um, during that time. You know, he he was involved in the Second Crusade. He, he, just lots of stuff. But there's very much a romantic element. You know, this is way before the Romantic movement and stuff in history. But his approach to God was very much, as you say, it's a love matter. Uh, and so the Song of Songs again is a love poem. For him, is there's this uh, romantic. Uh, sense of um, the relationship between the soul and God, and, and that we are drawn. You know, again, the, the little sliver of metal to the magnet. You know, it's this this idea that that we, it's we just would let let God act upon us, and so that idea of um, the Song of Songs starts off with this idea of of um, pursuing. Uh, your beloved, and you know, the lover draws you, and then you, out of this crazy love for this person, you, you do, you do whatever you need to do to to, to follow. So I, I would agree with you that that you know God is love, and so for it, it makes all perfectly sense and perfect sense in terms of theology of it. But Bernard, his his whole idea of bringing his family and others to, people would sort of say, you know, it, it, he's not the only one this is true of, but. He, you know, People said, I don't, I don't want him to talk to my daughters or my, my sons because they're going to go off to the monastery. Um, he's going he's gonna to woo them and he's going to seduce them into going off to God. And because that's how, you know, he was in love and when you're in love, it's, you're, it's easy to preach and to proclaim and to um, be the messenger for somebody you love or something you love. And so he was valuable in that way. So, you know, it's, uh, I consider like, from him through, say, St. Catherine of Siena. So from the 11th century through the, say, the 14th century, the, you know, the high to late Middle Ages, you have these great theologians who um, were not afraid of this, you know, the descent of the mind into the heart, right? Mm -hmm. the, this idea of um, the integration of mind and heart as expressed in theology. So St. Bonaventure, St. Catherine right. of Siena, St. Francis of Assisi, um, right. you know, amazing theologians who were theologians that, like, it were, today we'd call them almost emotional, yeah. right? right. And, and, and it's almost like, well, you're, t you're talking about passions and emotions and, and almost more of a Thomistic kind of, Let's categorize things and maybe a, a way that it comes across a bit more rational or right. purely intellectual or dry. And I think there are real losses there. There are real losses when we, um, when when we uh, are too easily or readily keep the, the the intellect separate from the will, the mind and the heart, the knowing and the knowing about. Uh -huh. I mean, As, what's your experience of that? I just I was just thinking about today uh, in the world today. I you know, and, and not to not to underestimate Thomas Aquinas's own um, heart, but you're right in terms of there is this interesting high middle ages um, dichotomy that's not really a dichotomy, but um, it's seen as the the origin of the scholastic system, which is again very formal, very abstract, very intellectual. But you're right. There's all these other figures who are out there, you know, singing to the sun and the moon, and and doing all sorts of things that are um, highly emotional and uh, heartfelt, and you know, passionate. Yeah, passionate, and you know, they're dancing for the Lord. So it's it's a both and in terms of the medieval society. And I think about today. I think you know, in, in what's what's the greater need? As you would always say, both. Um, you know. Um, but I do think, I think we are, we, 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 in some ways we're too, emo, too emotion driven and feeling driven in our society. I think there's, there is a sense in which um, everything's about my feelings and my feelings are the, are the, um, the objective, um, well, it's not even objective, but like it, the, it, rule. the rule for me and my, my feelings are what count and bring me my truth. And so in some sense, we're too emotionally driven in terms of the intellect, and we don't know God at all very well at all. Um, on the other hand, I think that the emotion of loving God is something that's always going to attract. Um, 
there's there's an attractive element to that, and it is maybe it, it is the way into people's hearts because that's what they're used to feeling. That's the, that's their identity is their feelings. Well, um, feel God, um, and so it's again there's a there's a, a tension there today I suppose as well just even in terms of apologetics or evangelization. Yeah, you know it's a, uh, and I think you you probably will kind of connect with this point that like you go into a good local Catholic bookstore and you have a theology section over here and then a spirituality right. section over yeah. here. And the spirituality section is filled with, or not filled with, but has a lot of books that talk about experiences, right? right? And, and sensing experiences or are pretty much focused on like how do you develop a prayer life? And that right. theology books, again, tend to be technical um, "Quote unquote scientific, yeah. right, and and more do, yeah, more doctrinal and more intellectually oriented, and, and it's it's like, well, where do you put Augustine's Confessions? You know, where do you put Bonaventure's The Soul's Journey into God? You know, where do you put the Imitation of Christ? Um, right. You know, the the great works of of our tradition don't peacefully fit in our modern categories, and I think that it's a it's a rarer thing today." But a, a definitely needed thing today to find writers who know how to theologize our spirituality or th- theologize spiritually, right? Sort of the yeah. von Balthasar's, you know, doing theology kneeling, right? right? His his theme of kneeling theology that uh, that's where uh, that's where wisdom comes from. It's the pursuit of wisdom, which is savoring, and it's it's union with Jesus, who is wisdom. So that's where real theology is going to flow from, uh, a loving union with Christ, right? That kind of talk is just really foreign uh, for, I think, many, many, um, many Catholics today who are uh, trying to, like, grow in faith. They have to study theology over here, and you pointed out, like, apologetics. And then over here, they'll pick up a book on, let me grow in my spiritual life on prayer, right? So... Uh, do, you, do you know comment on that? And, and are there any uh, authors that you find today that have like kind of bridged that gap and, and kind of do both well? Well, I think that's one of the reasons we like Robert Spitzer's book. Um, I think that we thought of him as an intellectual, and now in this book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, we start to see um, some spiritual depth. There's there's power there too. I think again that would be kind of a an immediate little example of. Again, one of the reasons I think that we think this book is good is because he manages to kind of pull it off. Um, but I do think that there's uh, – we have a tendency to think either a theologian or a spiritual director. Um, so the, the author is either one or the other as opposed to – again, and, and remember, Bern of Clairvaux is oftentimes called the last of the fathers. The, the fathers of the church, that, that kind of distinction was not – that didn't make any sense. Um, that a lot of men, for many of the, the fathers of the church, what we mostly know about from them is their homilies. It's their preaching. And their preaching was very theological, but it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a theology text. It was, it was part of the liturgy of shepherding the flock. It was um, the, spiritual, uh, the spiritual side of it as well. So it's that idea. I think that, that we are trapped in some ways today and and trying to separate those, those two out. Uh, trying to, other, other figures where I, would, I was trying to, again, Spitzer came to mind just because it was immediate, um, kind of a nice surprise for us because I think that was why we were surprised. Wow. Um, didn't, thought this guy was a theologian. I thought he put, I could put him in that camp, but, but actually he kind of straddles it now. Well, and I think, um, like, so I would say when I just stop and think about it, like the most impactful theologians of the present moment um, that I like feed on are ones who seemingly do this really well. So mm-hmm. I, I would point to, I, you know, I, I mentioned Hansers von Balthasar. He clearly does that in, in so many of his most important books, but then, um, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So his writings on the liturgy, his writings on theology, right? The principles of, of fundamental theology, uh, or principles of Catholic theology, profound. I mean, they fire me up reading them. Uh, John Paul II, same thing um, with, you know, some, so many of his important writings as Pope are stirring both theologically and spiritually. They move the mind and the heart, at least they do for me. Mm-hmm. 
Um, or Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth series. You know, here, here's someone who's a, definitely a systematic theologian, and yet he can write about Scripture that, that writes about that, that points towards Christ. And he, you know, again, the whole point is knowing Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and and so, I think that's one of the things is does this author know Jesus or not? And as I come out, is he writing about Jesus or is he writing about some he or she writing about something? You know, again, an abstract you know, spiritual exercise and technique or abstract theological idea. Right. I think, I think that's some of the appeal of someone like Scott Hahn. Yeah. Right. So he's a teacher, but he, he's such a passionate preacher of the theology that he is writing that um, it is also very moving. Yeah. Um, I think that Peter Kraft, in his yeah. own way, yeah. Um, does the same thing though you might classify him more as a you know the philosopher right. slash you know uh, one who's theologizing but I, I find him very moving and then obviously then you can kind of trace back and you have people like C.S. Lewis and someone I think that jumps out is Bishop Fulton Sheen uh, you know yeah. just like I'm sorry go ahead no I you know honestly I've read some of his books I, I actually haven't watched much at all of his old TV shows I don't know I mean very short clips, but I haven't sat down and watched him preach or teach. I've read a few of his books upon the priesthood, um, and they're good. They're good. But I, I, I guess I, yeah, I, I guess I thought of him. Now that you think, now that you mention it, I do think he straddles that pretty well because he's a teacher, certainly on his show. He has, but he wasn't just teaching facts. He was, he was preaching. Yeah, well, and and I I would say this. I would say that uh, for me, it's much more his writings mm. than his like TV shows that uh-huh. are just again the shorter clips. Um, except maybe his when he does his like three hour Good Friday, um, you know those the extended sermons or, mm. or you know the three hours that he teaches. Um, but like those mysterious priests yeah, in the I life of Christ, yeah. Yeah. right? Those are so powerful. You know, if you, you talk about is that a theology of the priesthood or a spirituality of the priesthood, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, it's just it's so abundant and amazing. So I, I think this is like this is helpful, um, folks. As, as you're listening, you know, don't get discouraged if you like if you bought a book and you found you know it was in the theology section or you find it really dry and abstract and you feel like somehow am I like missing out on my faith if if I don't understand this. Uh, way of articulating our our Catholic faith. Uh, don't get to, too discouraged. It, you, know, you might have to find an author that does a, a bit of a better job of bridging the gap between um, theology and life, theology and spirituality, or spirituality um, beyond just talking about experiences. Right? I think of I think of some authors who maybe are focused on the spiritual life, but who um, do a, a great job of um, theologizing on the spiritual life. Right, so I, th- um, I think of um, remember that book we read, "The Gift of Faith" by Father right. Dodger. Yeah, right. Uh, that's profound. Good. Yeah, that was a good, a good example there. Yeah, and then um, what's the uh, what's that uh, other priest uh, on uh, Interior Freedom, Father uh, Jacques um, Philippe? Jacques Philippe, yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah. I think he does a great job as well. So there, there, there are uh, there are some modern day examples out there, but don't just presume that. Uh, dear listeners, that you're going to find folks who are doing this well, that it's a harder thing to do that well today. You know, well, uh, go, ahead. go ahead, Father. You know, I was reading recently a, 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 an Orthodox Christian who, was, who made the distinction, and you know, it's a generalization, but he was trying to make the distinction between, well, Catholics are more intellectual, they, they are more into reason, Orthodox are more to the heart. Um, and, you know, they don't lay things out so they're not scholastics. They're not going to lay things out so much, but they, 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 they go to the hard things. And to the extent that that's true, and again, that's a, it's, it's something that if it's true, we need to look at that and say, well, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. Um, the, and I don't, again, in its, at its best, it's not true of the Catholic Church. I mean, we just talked about the fact that the, the heart's there as well. But I, I do think it's, it's, I, can see where the, I can see where the idea crops up. Where we do argue, uh, you know, the, the Reformation was part of this. It, it was, there, it was, there's a spirituality element, but there was just lots of systematic theology arguments there. And, we, and we, there is an a mental, uh, intellectual element there to us that I think 
we do need this balance and we need to bring it in into balance. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't this in some ways like a fruit of philosophical movements in the 19th century, right? Where you have this rationalism and fideism and kind of a romanticism in there. These kind of trains of thought um, tend to separate what ought to be merely distinguished. And I think we're still living with some of the the ongoing fruits of that um, as as kind of a a mark of weakness of, of the contemporary moment. And I wonder how much of it is the, the faith is being, has been challenged for so long in the West by atheistic or non-Catholic sort of ideologies that there's an element in which you do have to engage at that level. I'm not sure in Eastern Europe and the Orthodox world, you know, you have Islam, but I, I, you, know, you had eventually, of course, you have communism. But, you know, I can just see Catholicism, there's, there's a need for intellectual engagement, and, and clear distinctions and rational argument. So it, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with it. We have to do it, but uh, let's do it, as you say, from, on our knees as well. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. One of the things that Kerry points out is that she says, like, if you look at like, many of the most impactful like, thinkers that are on television, you know, news commentators and, and other intellectuals, so many of them are Catholic. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're they're grounded in natural law. They're grounded in the analogy of being. They're grounded philosophy. in creation. They're grounded in philosophy, right? Philosophy, the handmaiden of theology. And so you have that richer background of reflecting deeply on yes. the world that God has created, and that does form people well to I, be able to then, uh, to then engage. And I would say it's not—that's one of the reasons why— if you're looking for conservative Supreme Court justices, you're probably going to look for a Catholic. Um, it's not to say that there aren't lots of great evangelical Protestants out there, but in terms of going to top law schools and engaging in intellectual life, I think it's just a richer you know, pool from the Catholic tradition. That's just one little example of the fact that we do have a strong intellectual tradition. That's one thing I found when I came back to the church. I, I've told this story many times, but... When I came back, I thought that the, the church was foolish and for people who didn't understand anything or making it all up and fantasizing. But when I engaged in, in terms of the thought of that was being laid out for me by C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and these sorts of things, I realized this is a, one of the most sophisticated elements of you know, intellectual systems there's ever been. Um, you have peasant women and men in you know, the fields with spirituality in that way, but you have some of the brightest minds in, in human history who have been devout Catholics. Yes. That's Father Kurt Nagel. This is Tom Kern. We're reflecting today on, um, well, different aspects of our tradition and focusing on one of the great gifts that St. Bernard of Clairvaux brought was this beautiful union of mind and heart together in his theology and just reflecting on that as it manifests itself today in, in ways that are more broken apart. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Father Nagel, don't you love the pace we're going here? We have not even reached our first quote yet. So, Well, I would, I would delay that for just one more second. I, I, and I think one of, the re- one of the ways that Bernard, I just want to sort of end up with this idea of, of going to the heart. Um, here was, obviously, he was a brilliant mind. And he, he was very practical. Again, he, was a, he had to be political. He was, he was the head of the, you know, the, the order. He, he was... He, he had charge of these hundreds of monasteries, you know. And yet, if you want to go back to the heart, if you want to look at the Virgin, Blessed Virgin Mary, how we interact with Mary today, lots of it goes back to Bernard. And if you're looking at, at Mariology in terms of Marian devotion, he was, again, I would say he's the church father. You know, sure, there's John of Damascus. There's, there's lots of in the back, in the, in the past. But he had this huge devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary that he passed on to the Cistercians who took it throughout Europe. In terms of just the emotional love of this woman, Mary. And so, you know, if, if, that's your, if that's the center of your own devotional life, Bernard is the man for you. Because he, he's the one that, again, the idea of Our Lady, um, that whole title, that chivalric understanding of serving your lady is in Mary, that's all going back to him and stuff. 
And so there's that element of the heart there that we don't want to forget when you're t- teaching and, and learning about Bernard of Clairvaux. Yeah, uh, he authored the Memorare, right? Yes, he, he was huge in terms of the Memorare. All his, all his, his the monasteries are Our Lady of, then you have a title. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're all, that, that's, that's all going back to him. Notre Dame. Well, that's so striking. I, I, I didn't realize that. I, I knew Bernard, St. Bernard had a, a great love of the Blessed Mother, but I didn't realize it went to, to that level. Um, and you know, that uh, I, just to kind of build off of that, there's a, a powerful quote that he says here that I think is connected to the things that we've just talked about. He rightly reads scripture who turns words into deeds. He rightly reads scripture who turns words into deeds. Mm-hmm. That uh, that seems to be a very Catholic idea. And the way monks read scripture. Uh, I mean, this is not an intellectual exercise, at least not purely. Uh, again, the, the Cistercians were not intellectuals in that sense. Uh, not the same sense that Benedictines were. But I think this is, you know, those, those of us listening today, you know, whoever's listening today, how do you read scripture? Um, do, you, do you think of that in terms of, I'm reading this so this, this shapes my life, this motivates and it shapes my life. Um, the, the scripture, I'm going to turn the word into deeds. I'm going to, in that sense, turn the word into flesh. That Christ working in me, can this word can become action in the world. Christ can be alive in me in that way. Well, and um, I believe he was one of the uh, um, influencers on St. Bonaventure who makes a distinction in his theology between veritas monastica and veritas scholastica. Mm. You know, scholastic truth and monastic truth. And the distinction is, and you can probably just see where it's going, right? Scholastic truth is the highly abstract, systematic well-ordered and organized presentation of the truth. Monastic truth is the truth that has sunk roots deep into someone's life and comes to birth and manifests itself in their lives. And you read the truth by reading their lives. So that idea of, you want to know what the scriptures look like? Well, come and follow me around, because the scriptures that I've just read are going to sink roots into the core of my being and they're going to begin to bloom and blossom and how it is I actually live my life going forth from that time of prayer. The Word becomes flesh again in my life. And it's so Christological. I mean, that's what Christ did. He said, come follow me. And um, again, you want to know who God is, just come and follow me and look at what I say, do, how I act. So it's kind of going back to what we were saying about you know those those writers uh, they could straddle that idea of so the saint is both right uh, well the saintly uh, Thomas Aquinas some of these saintly um, doctors um, you don't want to just be a doctor a doctor you can have a certain amount of information you pass a certain number of tests you get a title you're a teacher you're a professor you and you become a theologian but you know to become a saint. Um, if, if you're not doing this, if you're not reading in such a way that you put the words into deeds, then you never become the saint. You're just, what's, what good is it being a doctor if you're not a saint? Yeah. Well, it was uh, Pope St. Paul VI, um, uh, famous uh, sort of quote from Evangelii Nunciandi that uh, the world today desires witnesses more than teachers, and if they are listened to as teachers, it's because they're witnesses first. Mm-hmm. Kind of gets at that same point. Um, or as, as my friend would say in the seminary, he'd say to me, don't tell me what you believe, I'll follow you around and watch how you live, and then I'll tell you what you believe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right? a good point, yeah. Yeah, I'd see the kind of friends I hung around with yeah. in the seminary. <laughs> A lot of fun, huh? Yeah, well, you know, that's it's always good fraternal challenges and corrections. Yes. Well, how do you know he was correcting me? Well, I'm sure that he was edified. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's funny. No, there was a gap there. There was the gap, and, yeah. and, and he just kind of reminded me of the gap. So, um, all right, here's, a, here's another quote. This is actually a theme I talked about recently on Sound Insight. Ingratitude is the soul's enemy. Ingratitude is a burning wind that dries up the source of love, the dew of mercy, the streams of grace. 
So just the importance of gratitude. So turn, you know, the opposite is gratitude. And I, I was just thinking about that. I, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned the last time I was on recently on, on your show, but just the idea of, again, even in Ignatian spirituality of the 30 day exercises, you have the examine prayer and you're looking, part of that is not looking for sin. Part of that is looking for blessings from God and giving thanks to God twice a day. And that, that idea of, I can't imagine a, a saint that's, that's not just overly overwhelmed with the gratitude for the blessings that he or she's received. And I think that's, but it's something so doable for us. Um, this, is, this is a spiritual exercise, I think, that would have huge impact and is doable, is to, be, to, to seek and cultivate gratitude. So um, I, it's all true, the idea, you know, the idea of a burning wind. You know, do you want to be dried? Um, you know, who wants to be dried up? Um, but I can, I can imagine a dried up soul. Um, and I can also imagine a soul that's all full of sin and is, and is messed up in lots of ways. But if, if, if grateful to God for blessings is still you know, open to life and spiritual growth. Well, you know, it's uh, my what I was reflecting on a couple of days ago was the fact that I can be so intense and fervent and consistent and persistent when it comes to asking things from God. But I don't know if any of those qualities pertain to how I react after I receive them. Mm -hmm. It can be just so quick and say, thank you, God. Oh, it's such a relief that you finally answered my prayer. Okay, hey, what's on TV? <laughs> right? And And it's like, why aren't I concerned... Why don't I have like a, a passionate concern about ensuring that God is praised and thanked well for the abundance of his mercy and graces and love? And, and it's just like, that's not something that quickly comes to my mind as I should be thanking him at least as much as I've been petitioning and interceding um, on behalf of others towards him. I think, all true, I think even the greater danger for me is not to even recognize that he's answered my prayers, that I'm used to praying for things, and then sometimes it's things change, and I'm relieved rather than grateful because I'm relieved because things have changed, but not really put the two and two together even to say, thank you, God, for answering that prayer. I'm just thinking, oh, that's good. That's changed. And that's, that's even sh a shallower take on things. But to, a quick thank you is not great, but at least to be to be engaged enough in the divine project to at least be able to recognize this is this is God's action. It's not some sort of random event or just lucky a lucky strike. But it, but it's actually God. And and if you don't see God, you can't be grateful for Him. Um, if, so, no, that's a really you're kind of opening up a, a different like a whole different vista for me here because then there are all these times where why am I not getting God involved more quickly? Yeah. you know, sooner or at all in situations that uh, I find pressing mm -hmm. um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, uh, am I like attentive to the ways that he is responding? Um, you know, huh. Bernard, the first quote that we have is God will either give us what we ask or he knows to be, or what he knows to be better for us. And I think you're pointing out sometimes he's giving us what's better and we don't recognize right. it because it's not what we asked for. Doesn't even, it doesn't even appear to us, oh, that's God's, in, God's acting right now for our good, and it's, it's just like he doesn't even enter into the picture. Yes. So, um, well, we're up against another quick break here, Father, uh, and we'll have a, a short section as we end up our program today. But back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel, and we're reflecting on St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, important um, work that, we're, uh, that he has provided to the church as this great doctor of the church. Um, and so St. Bernard, feast day was on Friday. It's when we're recording the program. You're hearing it on Monday. Um, Father, I want to go to the last quote. Uh, the last quote is very powerful and beautiful. Uh, and it, I'll read it and then let you reflect on it. If then you are wise... You will show yourself rather as a reservoir than as a canal. For a canal spreads abroad water as it receives it, but a reservoir waits until it is filled before overflowing and thus communicates 
without loss to itself, its superabundant water. In the church at the present day, we have many canals, few reservoirs. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard this before. This is a, a new quote for me in terms of Bernard. Um, but I do think there's something, when I think the word reservoir is what strikes me, and the idea of the overflow, um, because I, th- I think of it as God, uh, the idea of diffusing the good, um, this idea of um, there's a gentleness there in some ways that it's just from the overabundance that I'm going to act um, and be. Again, there's a peaceful contemplative element to the, to the image for me that's going to be more powerful than the active channel or canal. That it's, you know, things are going up and down the canal, water's going up and down the canal, but there's, there's, there's movement, there's forward, back and forward. But the reservoir, again, that's a great prayer image even. Fill me, Lord, until I overflow into the world with the love that you've given me. Yes. Um, and I just, that, that's a spirituality right there. Yeah, exactly. Right? How many of us are walking around today with this idea that God, who is so generous in his love to us, is going to fill us to overflowing? And then that's, that's the way to live your life of faith, from a fullness received to an overflow and that just kind of brings me back to that idea of love, right? Love is just going to overflow itself. God's goodness overflows himself. And and that's that that's a vision for life that is like it that's joy, right? It's yeah. uncontainable, right? I just think that's such such a beautiful beautiful vision for our spiritual lives that to embrace that idea, Lord, make me a reservoir. Fill me to overflowing. Yeah. Uh, if more Catholics prayed that, why we would have We'd have more St. Bernard's. We'd have yeah. more, you know, compelling witnesses magnetically drawing people to the to the church and to vocations. Ephesians three nineteen to be filled with the utter fullness of God. That's yeah, what Paul amen. says. Well, Father, we have uh, forty five seconds left, and I'll give you the the final word here in this uh, final moment we have and uh, this uh, reflections on St. Bernard. I would go back to that book. So I, I push this book, and not everybody's books are different, you know, but uh, The Family That Overtook Christ by R. M. Raymond, it's a great book for Catholics to read. And if you really want to have a sense of Bernard, that book is one. It's accessible, but it's powerful. That's what I would end with. Amen. So, folks, uh, that, that, there's a great book. Again, I think one of the ways that we link mind and heart is by reading stories of how people witness to that in their own lives and stories of families who welcomed Christ into the center of their lives and allowed Christ to, to draw them forward as St. Bernard and his family did. That's a beautiful thing that would inspire us hopefully today as well. Father Nagel, thank you so much for being with me today. God bless you all. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.